Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. Mark Hunter is a treasure trove of insights and stories from a career in micro-private equity. Mark is a co-founder of KLH Capital in St. Petersburg, Florida, and has been a part of deals all over the country and all walks of life. In this episode, he shares many counterintuitive methods he's used in buying companies, how to develop emotional intelligence, be more thoughtful about who you work with, and what felt like dozens of stories buying and running companies. This conversation is loaded with advice and experience, and I hope you walk away with a few ideas for your own life and career. Thank you very much for joining, Mark. I've been excited to have you ever since you started sharing some of your stories on that Twitter thread a little while back. I know people got a lot of interest in that, and I'm excited to hear some of those stories, but would love to first hear about your really unique background and stories so far. It's certainly one I haven't heard before. It's an honor, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for reaching out. So the idea here, I think, is that we're really interested in like how to think like an owner. 
and how do we apply that to effectively making money? And anyone that has been involved in the deal business, people that are involved in the lower middle market, private equity marketplace, people that are in search funds, people that are kind of owner entrepreneurs, if you're active enough for a long enough period, you end up collecting dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of stories of things that go well and things that don't go right. And oftentimes the things that don't go well, they're things that are very difficult to predict. And this is something that you can't really learn in school. You kind of learn through trial and error. It's one of those things that you learn absolutely through experience. In fact, I think if you study like education or you study like learning in general, like you find that people learn the best through actually doing, like through experience. And that's certainly been my style. It's been my approach to doing things. I try to move very quickly and aggressively, be very active, and through those experiences, become a little bit more refined, a little bit better at, at the things that we do. So I'm happy to kind of share those stories and hopefully some of those pearls that are buried within those experiences that can be actionable. Some of that wisdom that comes out uh, merely through the experience of people that have been there before us. Yeah, I know we might need to take multiple episodes to get through some of the stories you've just told me off the air. I know you're from Omaha, which is where my wife and I are headed here pretty soon. Could you kind of start from there and work your way to the firm you founded and some of the other work you've done? Yeah, I am from Omaha. And I find now that I've lived in multiple places, not through the United States, but also globally, the Midwest has a unique culture, something that I really kind of respect, especially in some of those smaller towns, the agricultural based towns, not necessarily Omaha, but like outside of there in, in South Dakota and North Dakota. Country folks, they're my type of people. My brother, for example, he lives in Southern Virginia and he likes to consider himself a redneck. He identifies very much with like that type of culture. And I'm really fascinated with those type of things. In fact, we've got a rule at one of the companies that I found in KLH Capital uh, based in Tampa that we would never do any deal based in South Florida. And the reason why is that there is a different kind of ethic, a different moral culture that exists there. And we've learned through experience the same is also true in places like Cajun country. In Cajun country, I don't mean like New Orleans. I mean like actual maybe the area near Lafayette and around there is in some of the smaller towns. If you're not Cajun, don't go in thinking you're going to be able to buy a business and run it like the Cajuns do it. Like they have their own networks and you have to be kind of one of them. There's a different style of doing business. I wouldn't do business in the south side of Chicago the same way I do business in Omaha, Nebraska. But growing up there was kind of interesting. I didn't spend much time there. I left when I was seven. But my parents would tell stories of like running into Warren Buffett, like he was just a normal guy because he lived just a few blocks down from the area we're living in. He would show up at like Burger King or wherever it was, and he was just a normal guy. And later in retrospect, realized that that was kind of a unique opportunity to meet one of the people that I consider a mentor now. So how did you start KLH Capital? What was the story there? Yeah, I think founding stories or origin stories are really interesting because those folks that are not yet acquiring and building companies or starting their own, they may be on the sidelines and they're always wondering, is this something that I can do? Am I qualified? Do I meet the minimum requirement to be a business owner? Can I also become wealthy? These are the things that were certainly in my mind growing up and throughout my schooling and education. And I suffered from like kind of this inferiority complex. So like my hope and inspiration today is that like folks that are listening, that they hear stories like my own and those that I'll tell of some other founders that I've been privileged to work with that 
they gain that confidence. So, well, hey, like if some mediocre guy of average intelligence can do it, so can I. And I think that's a missing component of a lot of people's growth and development is just this extra boost of confidence that like there's completely normal people that are doing really extraordinary things because they're matching with the right environment. They're matching with the right mentor, the right coach, the right business partners, the right employees. They're able to find an environment in which they thrive. And it's something I'm really fascinated by. And I'm really kind of interested in how inefficient that is in our current economy. It's like, I can't think of a worse way to prepare people for accomplishing the things that they actually want to. So most people, like I'm thinking mostly like people that are wired like me, people that are interested in having control over their lifestyle, people that are interested in economic freedom, people that are interested, even if it's like a power trip, it's like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur because I get status in society. Or I want it girls. The way that guys get girls is you get rich. And so it's like, there's a lot of different motivations for going into business, but there's not a clear way to do it. And yet there's an enormous amount of value provided by understanding how to create that on-ramp. How does someone match with the perfect environment? And in my own case, so I had a little bit of a traditional background that in high school, I knew that I was either going to be a fighter jet pilot with the Air Force, which was by far my number one choice. Like I didn't think about anything other than flying and like beating up bad guys like that. I'm totally wired for that. Like I want some action. I want some adventure. Or I was going to go out and make a lot of money. I was going to start in business. Like if I was 14 and I had the opportunity to quit school and just start business, I would 100% absolutely drop out of school. In fact, I did drop out of school when I was like 16 because I was put in this like program for kids that like it was to basically prepare people for like STEM careers. It was like it was in Virginia. It's called a governor's school. So you go there like for half the day and it's like you learn bio and chemistry. Like I couldn't like it was the most soul sucking thing I've ever done in my entire life. I couldn't stand it. It was horrible. It was like a horrible. Like I got A's like I straight A's. I impressed my parents. It was great. But like I wasn't wired to be someone boring like that. I had to do something different. So I quit school and moved to South America kind of randomly because I was like, well, I'm going to study poverty. I'll study developmental economics and I'd rather be in a poor country learning about it instead of like reading it from a textbook. So when I was 16, moved to South America for a year and really had no intention of coming back. <laughs> it was kind of like, this is a hell of a lot more fun and interesting than going to government school back in Virginia. So did that. But then I was like, oh, the Air Force Academy is not going to accept me. I can't be a jet pilot if I don't have a high school degree. So I came back to finish high school and then was unable to get into the Air Force Academy for a variety of reasons, mostly because of my eyesight. I think, or I like to blame it on my eyesight. I got navigator qualified, not poly qualified. And so freaked out, I'm really cheap. And so I started looking for really inexpensive ways to accomplish my goal, which was how do I make money? So I want to go to school and get the minimum thing necessary in order to get into like a career that's going to pay me a lot. So I looked up like careers that get paid a lot. Number one starting salary for people with undergraduate degrees was in investment banking. So like, oh, no, yeah, that's a no brainer. Let's go do that. So I'm going to study finance. But with my record in high school, I'm not going to get into Ivy League school, and I'm probably not interested in competing with the folks who go to Ivy League school. So I applied to a local school, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. They gave me a full scholarship, and I was like, dude, let's do it. And the benefit of going to a smaller school like that, or it's not a smaller school, it's actually a larger school in Virginia. It's just not like necessarily a reputable school, or at least wasn't back then. <laughs> it's improving over time. But the field of business, that business school wasn't really well-developed or well-known. It's kind of where the kids go if you don't have any other options, which is how I was able to get a scholarship, of course. But the cool thing about that is that they accepted all kinds of AP credits, and I could bend a lot of the rules. So I love the title of your podcast, 
think like an owner. Like I tried to think like an owner and take, to me, that means like taking responsibility for one's actions. It's like thinking the next step behind what's actually happening. And so like, I was very clear. I was like, I'm going to school only because I want to make money. And so that meant I need to get in and out of there as fast as I can, because a year of experience is worth a lot. A year of earnings is so much better than a year of 25 grand, a year of lost opportunity cost and tuition and room and board and all that crap. So I I was able to skip two years of university, long story short. And then I kind of cheated. I just went to like the University of Virginia McIntyre School of Commerce. I knew the big investment banks were recruiting there. I pretended like I went to UVA, right? It's like nobody could tell the difference. I did the same thing at Duke. I went to like all the good schools and like I met the right recruiters and that was my on-ramp into investment banking. And after two or three years of kind of suffering through an investment banking analyst position and realizing that my soul was dying. And that's true for a lot of people that are in that type of role when you're working like 80 or 100 hours. It's like every week, it's like you can only do it for so long before you start thinking about other things. I was suffering from kind of like this inferiority complex. I didn't go to the right school. I didn't feel like I belonged there. It was like, I didn't see that I could become a managing director. I was very young. I got kicked out of a dinner meeting one time with a client because I was underage and there was a bottle of wine on the table. It was like one of those scenarios. I kind of internalized that. I was like, oh, I don't belong. I don't belong. I got to find something else. And so I was concerned about getting fired, actually. Like I was a pretty shitty employee. So very fortunate to have met two individuals that were what I consider to be like the OGs kind of the original like adventurers in this weird niche of micro PE, what I would consider kind of micro PE or like they were doing very small leveraged buyouts. And they had started that way back in 1985 with a bank that doesn't even exist anymore. It used to be known as Chemical Bank. And they had created their own fund of like $5 million, which to them was like a huge amount of money at the time. And they went out and buying these small companies, especially in the Southeast. And you had acquired 50, 100 of these companies. They did really well and they kind of retired. And at the point that I met them, it was just a perfect time is that they weren't too active. They had met, I think, their own financial goals. And I was young. I was ambitious, like 23, 24 years old. Wrote them a letter. I was like, I'll do anything it takes. I'm super interested in learning the things that you guys know. Let me know how I can best learn from you. Like if you take me on, like if you guys can be my mentor. They invited me down and met them and like, One thing led to another was able to kind of go into business with them in which I basically ran most of the operation and they were kind of investment committee and they did the things that like I couldn't do, like talk to like business owners at the time, like my first year, I had no idea how to talk to a business owner. And they were really good and were able to show me the ropes there. And I was very fortunate because they gave me kind of that freedom to go make my own mistakes. And so that's how I got started in private equity as a very young person. And we were doing deals just on the side, like we'd buy one to three companies a year just as individuals, not as like a formal official effort. But I came to them like after 12 months of doing that, I was like, we're finding a lot of really good quality deals. And I think we can make like actual money here. And I don't think it's going to impact your personal lifestyle. What if we created a fund to do this formally? So that's how KLH started. We weren't very creative, so we just took our initials, uh, Curtly, Leck, and Hunter, and we formed KLH Capital. And long story short, that company now, we manage about a half a billion of assets under management. And it's been successful enough that none of the original co-founders, John Curtly, Jeffrey Leck, or myself, are actively involved in the operation now. But we've kind of passed along to the next generation. So with the early days in that investor group, 
you, you said you weren't talking to business owners. You didn't know how to do that yet. But I'm curious, what lessons did they begin sharing with you during those 12 months working with them? Let's go back to kind of founder stories. So one thing that I quickly noticed on some of my first trips to tour companies with them, and I was in a very privileged position because even though I was young, by the time I was 29, I'd probably reviewed thousands of deals on paper and have personally met with in person and toured companies over a hundred times of all kinds of weird companies and diverse geographies and industries. So I learned by being able to tag along with them for the first few trips, like I saw that their style was unique and that they immediately kind of formed personal relationships with people. And it wasn't so much about business as it was about learning about the things that matter to them, like the core motivations. And are we good partners for each other? It was kind of this dance of like, let me know what you're looking for. I'll tell you what I'm looking for. And this is how I kind of do business. And like, if it works, that's great. If not, it's cool. We don't have to do a deal. We're kind of doing this because it's fun and it's interesting. We like to hang out with smart people that have been successful. And so I learned that it was like a kind of a casual thing. Like I'm used to like high stakes, like investment banking. I'm going to wear a suit and we're going to pitch the CFO of Raytheon and we're going to do a deal. This was entirely different, like kind of more super casual. In fact, one of the feedback I got from one auction process that we were involved with, of course, we tried not to get involved in auction, but occasionally it happens. And there is like, so the feedback that Brother gave us was like, yeah, you guys seem great. They cool your valuations on target, but like, you're very sloppy. I mean, like you didn't tuck in your shirts. It was like, you didn't take it seriously. Like that's kind of what our approach was. But I think it taught me some really important lessons about what really matters. And the game of buying a company is much more about the personal motivations for the people involved. It has to do with the things that you're not going to see in a confidential information mirror. This isn't going to show up in the offering memorandum. These are things that you have to meet with people in order to truly understand, in order to really understand if it's a good match for you. Because not every deal is going to be a good match for you. Not every good entrepreneur is a good fit for a certain form of institutional capital. And the weird thing is that most of the people that try to get in between deals, like business brokers, like investment bankers, like CPAs, attorneys, like people like that, that, uh, that are likely to come across an owner that's looking to sell, they have no idea how to run a proper process. They have no idea because they focus on the things that don't matter. And they try to have like these power trips and they try to control a process. And they're like, no, we're doing this and you have to follow these rules and we're doing a big auction. Blah, blah, blah. It's a huge disservice for entrepreneurs. It's a huge disservice for capital providers. And so I got so annoyed with that, that I started becoming active in the industry association for business brokers because I want to teach them. I was like, you guys got it all wrong. Like you're not focusing on things that matter. So I joined the International Business Brokers Association. I started going to the workshops like as if I was a business broker myself. And I loved it. I started telling them, like, what you need to do is just get out of the way. If you can get out of the way, that's going to help us out a lot. And we're going to be able to get your deal closed. In fact, I've got a higher probability of closing without you involved than with you involved. And I started telling them about, like, the different ways that the diligence that it works out. And that's made one of the major hurdles that we run into. In fact, all those people that are out there, like, starting to search for companies. I've got a situation right now. One of my buddies here in the Tampa Bay area, he's looking to buy a small business and there's a great company that's for sale and he can't get around the business broker. And so I wanted to write an entire memo, like an entire essay about how to get around this guy because you have to go talk to the owner directly. You have to live with that owner. You've got to know them so intimately that you're going to catch that one thing that's going to cause you to lose a lot of money. And even if you don't, 
you need to learn the things that that guy's learned over 30 years of doing that. That's how you're going to learn and grow in the business. And I've got a few examples of like situations like that, where during diligence, I just went to go basically live with the people that I was about to do business with. Like literally, I tried to invite myself over to like, when I have to visit the company, I try to sleep at their house. I want to be so close with them that that's a natural invitation. Like, dude, oh, don't stay in a hotel. We've got a guest room. Like, and that's happened. And I've loved it. In fact, I lost a ton of money on a company in Jackson, Mississippi, because I discovered something while living at the dude's house, like staying at the guy's house. So let me back up. I'll give you the full story on this one. I don't like reinforcing stereotypes, but here's one of them. Here's a redneck from the Mid-South. I love rednecks, believe me. Like, I love working with rednecks. Like, it's, I'm totally like that style. So I get along with these guys really well. So he runs the second largest auto repo company in the country. And I love the industry. I mean, it's unsophisticated. It's dirty. It's like nobody smart you're competing with. It's like you can innovate. You can be creative. You can really build an amazing professional company in this industry. It's one of those things I was like, man, I'm going to go sell everything I own and put more money in this company. And so we do the deal. The seller stays on. He's still running the company. And I'm staying at his house with him and his wife. And this is like two or three beers into the evening. He's like... Hey, buddy, come over here. I want to show you something. Hold my beer. And it's like the classic meme. It's like when a dude says, hey, hold my beer. I want to show you something. It's like, oh, shoot, what's going to happen now? I kind of got that feeling in my gut. It was like, this is, uh-oh. And so he pulls up Google Earth. And this is in the early days of Google Earth. And he's like, look at this. Have you ever seen this before? I'm like, yeah, of course. I know what Google Earth is. He's like, well, you know that door knocking service that's really profitable for us? Well, let me show you what we're doing. I'm like, okay, well, how do you do it? And he's like, well, you know, the companies, they really like to get updates on their accounts. So we're the best in the industry. We provide those updates and we're better than anybody else. And you know how we do it? We use Google Earth. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he zooms in. He's like, all we got to do is tell them like, we sent a driver out there and this is a one-story brick rancher and there's nobody home, but the utilities are on. We're going to try again tomorrow. And that's their update. And they get paid 40 bucks to go out and do that. I'm like, so you kind of tell the customer that you're going to do this thing, but you're not actually doing it? He's like, that's right. And I'm like, oh, crap. That's what you call fraud. That's like a major problem. And I didn't say it out loud because I just live at dude's house. But it's like, we got an issue here. Long story short, that's where, of course, all the margin of the company was. So you get rid of that service. You got a problem. We were highly leveraged. That was the end of that story. So maybe one of those lessons that don't do business with people that have kind of strange ethics that think that cheating customers is like, okay, maybe really profitable. Best not to do that. I unfortunately learned the hard way of doing business with people in many different industries that think some things are okay where it's really not. Is there another story or deal in particular you can remember where you feel like you learned the most from? Well, another like really quick lesson is that my first ever deal was a complete write-off. And this was a company that I would call it like it's involved in like the cosmetics industry. They blend certain things like lotions and it was very highly profitable. And we had two guys that were like industry veterans that really had the distribution relationship. So like, hey, we can take this really small company. We make a few phone calls to our friends at these big companies and it's going to be three times the size in 12 months. Just wait, we can show you how to do this. It's going to be amazing. We could buy the company really cheap. It was awesome. It was a management buy-in. So we weren't too concerned about the seller. So we always hire a private investigator to do due diligence background checks on people. And like, we do really intense background checks. We pay a lot of money to do like, to, I want to know the size of underwear that people wear. I want to know everything that there is about somebody. And so our PI comes back to us like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but 
This is a dude who was pulled over for a traffic incident, a very minor thing, but as he opened the door, according to the police report, there was a crack pipe in his Jeep. <laughs> and so he got busted for not cocaine, not anything else, but for smoking crack. And so like, I bring this to my partners. I'm like, hey guys, like, this is weird. We're dealing business with a crackhead. I don't know if we want to do this deal. And so we talked through it. And it's like, well, we kind of reconstructed the financial statements. We kind of know it. it's a management buy-in. Like we got confidence in the numbers. The guy's not staying around. Maybe we want to do the deal. Lesson learned, don't buy a company from a crackhead. Okay, just don't do it. I've done it. You don't want to do it. You're going to lose all your money. That's exactly what happened. It was a write-off. One of the many things that I've learned over the years, don't buy businesses from crackheads. Speaking of destructive behavior, I know you've talked a lot about emotional intelligence or definitely thought a lot about it. And we've discussed it before. I'm curious how you've seen emotional intelligence play into deals that you've worked in over time. Absolutely. So I currently work with a really wonderful guy. I think he's brilliant and he's super fun to work with. And he likes to be very precise with his language. So he often asks things like, what's the question behind the question? In other words, let's go down to the pith of what we're really talking about here. What are these core motivations? I think what we're talking about here is like, what are the ways that I can increase the odds of being lucky? What are the things that I can do that level up my game, that make it more likely that I'm going to meet my objectives? Like if those objectives are making money or like building a business or whatever the case may be. And it's an area that I'm fascinated with because, of course, this is not something that school covers. Uh, school completely ignores this. School actually trains you to be the complete opposite of an ideal entrepreneur. And it takes many years to kind of unwind that sort of thing. But there's things that I've noticed through like repetition, just from enormous amount of action and experience in the real world that allow someone to be really lucky. And it has a lot to do with kind of the core question of like, who do you want to be in business with? And this is where emotional intelligence comes into play. It's very under theorized. I think it's very underappreciated. I think if you talk to a bunch of old people in the industry that have bought companies, it's something that they're all going to, they may not call it that, but they're going to talk about it as being one of the core things because business is all about humans. It's all about relationships. It's like relationships with investors, relationships with owners, relationships with employees and management and suppliers and customers and it's all driven by relationships and you want to be someone that everybody wants to work with you want to be someone that they go out of their way to say i choose you so if you're a searcher looking for a company in today's world the, the market is just so red hot that like there's going to be competition for it and so your question is like how am i going to stand out and you're going to want to have somebody on the opposite side of the table say I don't really care so much about economics. What I really care about is being able to work with you. So what are those traits? What are those characteristics? And what I kind of interpret that to be is like, it's a form of maturity. It's being highly evolved. So I heard somebody really smart on some podcast. It may have been like Reed Hoffman or like Mark Andreessen, someone like that was like an all-star. They were asked a question like, who do you hire? What's your criteria for hiring people? There's just one thing you could look for. And they mentioned, well, I really want someone that's like conscious, someone that's like aware. And that is exactly what my experience points to. It's very natural that that is the type of person that you want to work with. And if you're in the presence of someone who is highly evolved, that is very aware, that can concentrate their mind, that can focus, they become someone that's an ideal partner. And I've been 
fortunate to be in business with a wide range of folks from people that are highly evolved to those that have the moral development of a crustacean. And you learn from every one of those experiences. And so rich people, people that have control over resources, have a lot more choice. And so they're going to be more selective in who they choose to work with. And what I found is that if you can level up your game to be more highly evolved so that you are more selfless, so that you're more patient, so that you're more humble, so that your ego doesn't get in the way, so you're a little bit less disagreeable, so that you're in a position to tolerate pain and suffering while keeping your eyes on the prize so that you can make sacrifice on behalf of other partners that you're working with. Those are things that build the integrity or the core of a type of person that I would want to work with. And that's the type of people I'm looking to do business with. And what I found is that that is not ironically, it's exactly what you find when you look into any kind of wisdom tradition. By wisdom tradition, I mean like the keepers of like the core tenets of truth within a society or any culture. Most people tend to refer to it as like religion, as like, as a religious wisdom tradition. And so look in anyone, like, and this is a little bit weird, but if you like look into the Bible, for example, you're going to find that all of Jesus' teachings help you to become incredible at business. It's a very unusual take, but it's one that I totally believe in. And it doesn't have to be like the Bible. It can also be, look at the Bhagavad Gita. Look at the Pali texts from the Buddhist scriptures. Look at the Torah. Look at the Quran. Look at any wisdom tradition. And all of them are pointing towards the same thing, which is like, become selfless. Like if you could summarize the Bible in one word, it's like, be selfless. It's like, think of others before yourself. And that's exactly the type of person I want to work with. And I think most people want to work with somebody that's way, somebody that is simple, that's humble, that's patient. And you think of like even stories like from the Bible that I just love, like things like when Jesus says in the Testament, he's like, hey, if you really want to follow me, go sell all your things, give the money to the poor and follow me. So what does that mean? What that means to me is like what I'm hearing is focus. What I'm hearing is like something that I can apply to the business world. Because what would happen if a potential employee or a business partner came to me and said, look, man, I love what you're doing. I love this style of thing. I don't know how you're doing this stuff thing, but I love it. I want to be part of this thing. And I don't really care about my selfish interests right now. What I'm really interested in is in learning. I'm going to go sell everything I own. I'm going to pack it in my car. I'm going to drive wherever you are, and I'm going to learn from you. If anybody approaches me like that, they're hired. I'm going into business with you right away. How can I invest in a person like that? And I think that's what someone like a spiritual leader like Jesus is kind of like, he's pointing to. And like, I don't see a difference between the spiritual teachings and wisdom and the actual world. To me, they're exactly the same. They're teaching the same lessons. I know you've also talked about this personal awareness, becoming a more likable person, but also being more aware of just in the pursuit of money and how there's a sense of maturity that you've found to be really helpful for that. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit of the way you see the pursuit of money and becoming a more mature person over time and how those two concepts interact with each other? I think the question is like about what game are we playing? What are the core motivations for us going into business? Why do we want to search to buy a company? And I think that root question is about ultimately what makes us happy. I think that that drives all of human behavior. Every choice that we make every day, if we're conscious and aware, is driven by this desire, which one of these is going to make me happier? And most people feel that resources, that's the route. If I just was rich, then I would be blah, blah, blah. So it's just like future projecting. 
The trap with that is that it it doesn't allow you to be present and happy in the current moment. It's always going to set you up for disappointment. Naval Ravikant says it really well, is that it's like a contract for unhappiness or disappointment. And that's exactly what Buddha says. It's the exact same thing. And so like I think of like maybe I've got like four maybe things that I really like to focus on as kind of like key qualities or like takeaways or lessons. And one of them is like is focus. So focus is like the thing that I see first before I see success. It's one of those things when I'm evaluating new people to potentially hire a manager that maybe I want to back, somebody I want to invest in. I see how focused they are. There's hacks in order how to get that is that they can remove distractions from their life. And that's exactly what you see from the ancient truths is that there's a lot of people, they'll refer to it as like renunciation. And renunciation sounds horrible and nobody sounds excited about doing it. It seems the opposite of what we want to do. It's like, I want happiness. I don't want to get rid of the donuts. I don't want to get rid of the fun things. And what it really is thinking about is thinking about the time scale. It's like, am I interested in that that is immediate for that instant gratification? Or am I interested in something that's like longer term? Can I pass the marshmallow test and give up in the current in order to have something better later? That's a sign of maturity. And the ultimate sign of maturity is that like, hey, in the really long run, we don't have bodies. So what happens then? So there's people that have theories on what happens after death and everybody speculates, but there's this idea that you can train yourself to have certain impressions that benefit your current state by having that super long horizon by thinking about the non-physical. I like to think about, I always evaluate people, businesses, mostly people, because that's what all the business is. I'm evaluating how focused they are, because that is the key determinant to how successful they're going to be. And I see it, everybody knows this. So like, if you're going to go to like a big fight, like an MMA or a boxing match, like they spend months in seclusion at a fight camp so that they can focus exclusively on one thing. Same thing if you're going to be the best golfer in the world, you're just going to get rid of everything else and you're going to golf and golf and golf and golf. And it's like if you imagine energy coming in the top of your head, it immediately becomes fractured and dissipated by like thoughts and worries and concerns and hangs ups and melodrama and projections and memories and fears. And if you evaluate the top performers in any field, you can examine their focus and there are people that are absolutely obsessed with what they're doing. And it's just that they're a little bit more focused than the other people. That's how you outcompete people. It's not about IQ. It doesn't matter what your SAT score is. It doesn't matter what your GPA is. What matters is can you concentrate your mind? And that's really the essence of like education. It's the basis of entrepreneurship. And so if you want to be wealthy via entrepreneurship, I would first talk about things that nobody else is, which is clarity and concentration. What's your actual mission? What are you actually looking for? Related to that are things like desire, because desire is a great tool to concentrate the mind. If you really, really want something, you just focus on one thing and everything else goes away. And so it's like, how do you cultivate that burning fire, that burning desire? And also like becoming likable. And I think likability is one of those things that people that naturally get their ego out of the way, they become much more pleasant to work with. And people that have resources, that's who they choose to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And to the point of becoming more likable, you know, you've talked about just the personal growth stories of some of the people you've worked with. And can you think of a person you've come across in your life and business that has one of your favorite turnaround stories where they started recognizing those things and really transformed their life and career? I've got dozens of stories like that. Let me pick one. This is a fun one. So 
This was also one of the most profitable deals that we've done. So this was a company that if you're driving down the interstate and you see these big like aluminum style, like steel containers that transport bulk liquids, anything from like chemicals, paint, gasoline, you name it, it, it's transported in these big containers. The largest company in the country that does that is based out of Tampa called Quality Distribution. They ran into some financial hiccups. They needed to raise some money to pay off some high-yield bonds. The CEO decided that they would do that by selling off an orphan division that cleaned those chemicals and paints and eggs and chocolate and all kind of peanut butter, everything else that is transporting these things. They clean in between those loads so that you don't contaminate the next load. And we had met this guy that was the kind of the general manager of that division. Now, this is a dude that... If you can imagine, he's 350 pounds, and like maybe three years ago, he was a truck driver. So that's his career path, and he's an amazing, awesome dude. And I met him just through the magic of coincidence in that I went to a conference out in Las Vegas to talk to business brokers, frankly, about how to get out of the way. And in one of those workshops, and so after that, I was on a plane, I was connecting through Charlotte, and one of the guys on the plane, he recognized me as being like at that conference. He's like, oh, dude, were you at the IBBS? Like, yeah, that's me, man. And so he introduced himself. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a broker. I'm out of North Carolina. It's all this thing. He's like, you know what? I'm actually working on a deal there, you guys, but it's a little bit late in the process. We already kind of had three groups come through. We picked our guy. We're moving forward. I wish I would have known you before. I was like, oh, bummer, man. But like, dude, if it's local, you got to let me meet the people. Like at least, what do you have to lose? And so I really tried to sold them, like sold them really hard. I was like, give me a chance, man. Just, I want to talk to this guy. So we get in, I go in with both of my business partners. So it's the three of us and we pitch this guy. And so I thought it went really well. It's like, oh man, like we're totally winning this deal. Like this guy loves us. Like this is wonderful. This is going to be great. So a few days after that meeting, I don't hear anything. So I call the broker. I'm like, hey man, like, just looking for some feedback. How's it going? Like, what do you think? Can we make this work? And he's like, we really are very selective. And we brought in three groups originally. And we added you at the last. And honestly, like you're like in fourth place. We got much better options, man. But thanks, but no thanks. And so I was like, okay, great. So what do you do then? Like, I think most people at that point, they just give up. It's just like, okay, well, you know, I can't do anything. So I'm a former juvenile delinquent. So I like to break all the rules. And I love people that break rules. I think it's a really necessary thing for society. In fact, like, all times when there's an innovation or there's a breakthrough or anyone that pushes society forward, they're always breaking rules. We should encourage this all the time. Like rules are for people that are compliant, which is exactly what school teaches you. It's not for entrepreneurs. So the rules of the game was that I was supposed to give up. And so I was like, perfect. Now I get to put on my helmet and get in the game. So I hire my private investigator. I'm like, hey, there's this guy. Here's his name. He runs this company, this little division of his company. I need to meet with this guy. Get me his cell phone number. I can't get his number any other way. We hack his phone number. I call him. I'm like, hey, man, it's me. You may remember me. It came in, whatever. Like, I understand we're not moving forward. It's totally cool. But because you're local, like, why don't we meet up? Let's have a beer. You bring your wife. Like, just get to know you a little bit better and like, we'll share some stories. So I called my friend who's ran this restaurant and I was like, okay, I've got a special guest. They're totally VIP. Here are their names. I need a custom menu that has their names printed on the top of it. So I was like, I'm going to really blow these guys away. Like they're going to remember me even if they never want to work with me. I have these custom menus printed also invited partners. They came along. It was really cool. So like I sit next to this guy and we're like, just drinking a beer, having a really nice glass of wine. I'm telling him like 
all of my deeper values. So he knows a little bit about my character, kind of why I'm in business, what I'm doing, what I'm interested in. And so once he starts trusting me a little bit, I really start opening up. I tell him all of the things that I know that private equity groups are going to do to screw the management team. You need to look out for this in the legal documents, watch out for this. Da, 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 da. You know, I keep going through all these things. And I'm like, look, not all people do business the same way. And long story short, at the end of that dinner, the guy shakes my hand. He's like, dude, so nice meeting you. Like, this is really wonderful. You're the guy we're going to work with. Perfect. So I turned the situation completely around to the point where we became his key partner in that deal. So this is a guy that I would say blue collar, like hustle. This dude had hustle like nobody else. And I loved it. And that's why I wanted to bet on him. This was a very asset intensive business. So it doesn't fit a traditional private equity profile. Yeah, we're spending like $2 million a year on CapEx. There's a lot of things not to like about the company, but I love this manager. And so he's the type of guy that grew professionally so much out of just raw desire. This was his chance to finally make it. He was going to take care of his family through this deal. He was so motivated by that. And what he didn't have in terms of like educational background or any of this stuff, he made up for from just desire. And that's all it takes. Long story short, we buy majority control of that company with a $3 million equity check. So we own like 75% of the company. We end up buying the number one competitor using some really creative financing without having to put any more equity in the company. And within like two or three years, the company is valued over $100 million. And we still own like 70% of the company that we bought for a $3 million check. And that sets up our fund. All you need is like one or two deals like that. And it's like, boom, we're now in the big leagues. We can now raise money. We can now show that we've got something special. And the big pivot point there is just hustle. It's hustle for management team, but it's also hustle from like the guy like me that was searching for the company. Like I knew I was a loser. I knew I missed out on that. But by going the extra mile and building a personal relationship was able to turn a non-deal into a deal. And that became kind of like my mantra. It's like, I'm going to turn all the non-deals into deals, just wait. And that became my personal mission. And we did it a handful of times. And I love telling the stories because they're in fact, the top three most profitable deals I've been involved with were all that way, deals that I pulled out of the trash can. Yeah, I'd be curious for some of those other stories about what are the most creative ways you've found to buy a company? Okay, let's talk about, here's a fun one. So this is a government contracting business based in the Mid-Atlantic area. And we saw the company and my interaction was with the CFO. And so I learned a little bit about the business. And I try to go really deep in diligence. Like, even if I know it's not a deal I'm going to do, I want to learn as much as I can from the people that have been there and done that, because I'm going to learn a lot about the industry to see if there's maybe other opportunities. But I'm also going to learn about just like the nature of running a profitable company. There's a lot of interesting, like human stories that come out of like the tragedies and like the excitement of being in the deal business. And so I met with the CFO and he's like, yeah, here's the situation. And talking to this guy was like talking to like a normal CPA, just boring as hell. It's just like, this guy's got no personality. And he presents a company this way. He's like, yeah, it's kind of family owned. There's a lady that owns it now. And there's like a son-in-law that is involved. And he's like, but I got to be honest with you that 80% of the company is tied to this one government contract. And that contract's up for renewal in like 18 months or something like that. And yes, we are qualified as a woman-owned business. Cool. That's 
enough for me to kill that deal. And that's what every sane, normal person in the deal business would do. It's like, you can't take that risk. That's not okay. That's not smart, right? That's not what smart people do. That deal we quickly passed on. But at the time, I knew that I was going to pursue other things outside of private equity. And so I was trying to share some of the things I learned through experience with the younger guys. And I have to introduce a guy that I think the world of has become a good friend. And he's a dude that we literally met at a bar. We met him at a bar like after work one day and he's like, he's just a normal, like awesome dude, like that has a hell of a personality. And he's like, everyone could be a friend with this guy. And we met him and he was like, he was like selling insurance at the time. He was like 22 or 23, something like that. So just starting out in the insurance business. And I met him and like, I recognized like, dude, this guy's personality is awesome. Like he can talk on the phone for days. Like, I wonder what would happen if we hired a guy like this, like a guy that doesn't have the traditional like finance background, didn't go to Ivy League school. Like, what if we brought him into the company? And so I was very fortunate that my partner will like agree to that. And we're like, okay, cool. We're doing this. We're hiring him. And so we start working with this guy, Kyle. And long story short, the guy becomes like by far like, I think I'm biased, but I think he's like the number one guy in terms of origination, finding good deals to buy for lower middle market companies. He's just, he's an incredible, he's an absolute machine. And so at that time, I was trying to show like teachable moments about like how to do proper diligence on companies. And so we had this federal government contract company. And so I'm like, hey, this is a deal we're not going to do. It's a really crappy deal. And here's why. But let's just go chat with the guys that are involved because I've got three pages of questions and it's this process of asking questions that is going to teach us a lot about doing deals. It's going to teach us a lot about how to evaluate companies and what's good and what's not good. So we're like, we're going through with the CFO, the, all these questions, just boring, boring. It's like, oh, horrible. Like, it's just like, okay, it's like time to move on with our lives. And like, finally we got to something. He's like, I don't really know the answer to that, but tell you what, there's a guy here, our VP of sales, that probably knows. And let me just grab him. He's in the next office. And so this guy, he gets on the speakerphone. And then the moment he starts talking, like two or three minutes in it, Kyle and I look at each other, we're like, holy crap, we're doing this deal. Where did this guy come from? This guy's a dynamo. This guy's amazing. And so by that weird extra effort, we learned something about that company that everybody in the world would have missed. And so we came back to the investment committee and we're like, hey, look, we know that this company looks like it sucks. This is not a good deal on paper. But if you peel back the layers of this onion, there's something really interesting going on. And I think we can get over these things. Let's do this deal. So long story short, that ends up being like a massive winner for the company. It was really a home run for both the management team as well as investors. What did the salesperson say or do that made you so excited? This was a young person that you can quickly tell when somebody understands their business really well and they understand like the path for growth in the future. So one of the things we're always looking for is, is there a clear path to growth? And so if you start asking questions like that, a really good manager that's poised to grow is going to have like an absolute plan. They're going to be a drill sergeant and they're going to say, this is what we're doing. We're going here, we're going there, we're going to do this. Da, 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 da. And it's like, it's just what they think about all day long. And so it was just crystal clear. And every objection we had, he had like a perfect rebuttal for it. And so he knew what our concerns would be because he's, of course, evaluated his own company. 
he also doesn't want the business to go bankrupt. So he's always concerned about customer concentration. He's always concerned about where the next revenue is coming from. And so by having really good answers for all the things that we were coming up with, we knew that this is a guy that's very aware. He's very conscious. And he's got the energy and the drive to take this company to an entirely different level. And he could see in the industry things happening that I'm sure the other leaders of other competitors weren't seeing. And so it was kind of like a lot of it is intuitive hits. And over time, you just get to recognize those patterns and intuition becomes stronger and you get a little bit more confidence in it. I've had many situations where I've kind of relied on intuition and somewhere I didn't and I've ended up losing big. This was one of them. I'll tell another story about, this is a company in South Florida. This was before I had that rule of never buying a company in South Florida. So this is a business that is one of the largest companies in the nation that distributes lawn and garden equipment. So this would be equipment that's sold not to like a homeowner, but like to professional landscape crews. And things grow like crazy in Florida, right? So this is a big industry. Not a sophisticated company, not a sophisticated industry. It's kind of a dirty, like kind of sweaty startup style business. And we buy the company from a retiring owner. We buy it very inexpensively. And the general manager is who we back in taking kind of an ownership position. And this was his first chance at ownership. He's really excited about it. And things go really well for like a few months. And then all of a sudden we start noticing that the margin shrinks. Things aren't working the right way. We're like, man, this is kind of bizarre. And so because it's a Florida company and like because I really wanted this deal to work out, I was tired of having write-offs. <laughs> I spent more time with operations. I rolled up my sleeves. I started crunching numbers and trying to figure out why we're not doing as well. And through that analysis, it just like, I couldn't make sense of anything. So I had to go on site to start asking more questions. So that's like the essence of like science. It's the essence of any inquisitive process. It's like, you have to ask questions and keep asking questions. And that's what I'm just as an aside, I'm a bit troubled by this stance we have in America that's kind of popular now, which is like, we believe in science. It's like, it's completely nuts. It's like, you can't believe in science. It's like the essence of science is like, it's the essence of like being skeptical and being inquisitive. And so I go to West Palm Beach to be really inquisitive with the general manager and the the owner of this company and the controller. And I can't put anything together. So I stay there a long time, like many, many days. And then eventually, like I get deep enough into the organizational chart where I'm talking with like the hourly employees, like the salespeople. And that's when I learned something really interesting. So a lot of the landscaping crews, some of them are maybe not documented immigrants. And so they don't trust banking systems. And so they will buy $12,000 of equipment with cash. That's just how they operate. And so I start tracing like how I asked this guy at the desk, like, okay, so if someone comes here at 12K, like, where does that K go? It's like, oh, we've got a rule. We always have to give it to this one GM. And then the GM takes care of everything. So by auditing kind of cash procedures, I started becoming a little bit suspicious. There was only one person involved in that process. Sure enough, this guy was stealing from the company. And more than that is that we started looking at credit card bills and I started seeing like stuff from like Zales, a jewelry company. It's like $4,000 and like, the kind of weird stuff. It's like, why are you buying jewelry? We're a freaking lawn and garden company. And so he's like, oh yeah, I was going to reimburse it. So I call him out on it, immediately fire the dude. And this is such like an unsophisticated industry that 
there's no institutional like management. There's no professional management in any one of these companies. We're like one of the largest companies in the country. And so it's like all the vendors they're used to working with, like Bob, the owner. And so that personal relationship is so important. And so to have the volatility of having to kick out like a key manager, a guy that's known as like the owner, like the guy that you've always worked with for 20, 30 years, it's not good. It's not good for vendors. It's not good for anything. The customers that have known this guy forever, it's like, oh crap, like this is not going to be good. Well, we find another guy through a headhunter that is like perfect on paper. That's just, he's got the best experience possible to run this company. He knows the industry really well. He writes white papers about how to improve certain operational things. Like he knows all the vendors already. He's super well-respected. It's like, this guy's awesome. We are so lucky. Like we should double our head on our fee on this one because this guy is amazing. He's going to save the day. So we bring in this guy and I'm doing my diligence on him. I spend as much possible time with him in person as I can. So I'm driving around in his car. We go to lunch or something. We come back and he opens up. And this is like the day or two before like the guy starts at work. We decide like this guy's just perfect. He's awesome. And like everything I've learned about him is like, it checks out. Like, it's just like the guy's amazing. And so, but there's this one situation. So like I'm in his car, he's driving an SUV and I get out of the passenger side and a roll of toilet paper rolls out of the car, right? And so it's just the weirdest thing. I'm like, okay, that's weird, awkward. But like, okay, so I grab the thing of toilet paper and I hand it back to him. And he's kind of like smiles and chuckles and laughs it off. He's like, oh yeah, you know, just in case of emergency or whatever. Yeah, it's cool. but something hit me. It was a weird intuitive hit. It had nothing to do with toilet paper. It had nothing to do with the situation at all. But I just start feeling like something's off with this guy. He's perfect. But I just, I don't feel like something in my gut hits me that like, it was like the universe was telling me at that time that this was about to be a shitty situation. This was about to get messy. And it was like this wonderful gestalt that happened in that moment. And I was stunned. And I just intuitively didn't want to work with this guy for like no reason. I had no reason to explain this. I couldn't articulate it to my partners. So I don't do anything about it. I didn't have enough confidence. And so we ended up hiring the guy. Two and a half weeks into the deal of him being on the job, I noticed like I'm tracking this company really closely because we're like close to financial distress at this point. So I'm seeing weekly cash flow projections, things like this. And I noticed that like our payroll expense is going way up. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So like I ask around and try to figure out who's new at the company, like what role are they doing? Like how much are they getting paid? as compensation structure. And my new buddy, Paul, who works the sales desk and makes like 12 bucks an hour, I talked to Paul and he's like, oh yeah, there's this new lady. Nobody really understands her because she doesn't know a thing about lawnmowers. Like she just hired as a salesperson and like she's like number two in the company, but we don't know why or anything like that. She seems weird because she doesn't fit. I don't know why this person's here. So I call my friend, the private investigator. So I get this lady's name. I'm like, run this lady, figure out what the deal is. Sure enough, this is the new CEO's ex-wife. Not current wife, not like girlfriend, but like ex-wife. It's like so weird, so bizarre. And so I knew in me, I was like, oh, we got a huge problem here. So of course we got to fire the guy again, this whole thing. And like he holds us hostage. So we end up, because of the vendor relationships, all that, we end up having to pay the guy to comply with the transition to get out of the company. It was just, it was just incredible. It was one of those lessons where... I think over time, one can learn to trust one's gut, trust one's 
intuition to make better decisions. And I wish that my balls were big enough back then to do something about that situation it would have saved us a lot of money and potentially saving that company. Did the toilet paper lead to anything or is that just an odd thing that happened? It was just weird, odd thing. But it stuck in my memory as like that moment I knew something was off. And it was like, sometimes I believe that the universe has these wrinkles and that you can see like a little glimpse into the future, a little glimpse into what's going to happen. Like when I was like 25 or something, I went to go see a psychic. One of my business partners, he gave me this book, this autobiography of Michael Crichton called Travels. And it really opened my eyes to like all kinds of weird stuff. Like it's a fascinating book. You know, Michael Crichton's a dude that wrote like Jurassic Park and a whole bunch of other cool stuff, but he's got an amazing story. He's like Harvard trained physician and all these other things. But I actually recommend the book. It's amazing. So anyway, I got fascinated by like the cult and weird stuff. And so I go to see this psychic and not like a storefront psychic, but like a person's house. That's just like, oh, I know this person. They're like totally clairvoyant. You can go talk to them. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Go try it. Whatever. I'm up for like kicks and giggles. So I go, the first thing, this lady opens the door, this like older Polish lady. And the first thing she says, she's like, oh my gosh, I want to touch you. I'm like, that's a very strange way to introduce yourself. Like, that is like, what? Like, what's going on here? Like, do I have to be concerned about my personal safety? Like, this is weird. So I end up in this session and she's like, no, 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 no. You've got a money energy. And this is someone that I've never met before. She doesn't know people I know. It's like, what? Like, this is kind of weird. She's like, no, no, you've got great money energy. I, I want to like get some of that. So I want to like touch you. Can I touch you? I'm like, it's so weird. And she's like, oh yeah. And I was like, at the time, like just to paint the picture a little bit, I was living on my friend's floor. Like I didn't even have a bed. I was like paying a few hundred bucks to crash on the dude's floor. And I had a car, a 1994 Geo Metro that I bought for like 1300 bucks. I wasn't like a very like successful like dude. Like I, would, I was just struggling like to kind of make it and like trying to save money and stuff. And like, so I meet this person and she's telling me like, oh no, you're going to be really wealthy. She's like, no, no, you've got this like thing. And like people around you are going to also be. And that's, it's actually one of many, 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 many things that have actually been totally true is that people that have been associated with me, like I think all of them have become multimillionaires. And even those people that started at very different places, like, yeah, I've got a good friend Lamar, who he's a dude that he grew up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, so to speak. And like everyone he knows has been to prison. His brother was murdered. His parents are, have been on drugs. He's still on drugs, like the whole thing. Like, dude's got a tragic story. And I met him because he was sentenced for five years for cocaine trafficking. So here's a dude who's starting with not a lot of advantages. But man, like I've started hanging out with him and we start hustling like on the side, some real estate deals. And like, he's well on his way, dude. Like he's an amazing light beacon for his community and he's going to do the same thing. It's incredible to see those type of stories, those things happening. It makes me wonder. It's just like the universe is so complex. It's so interesting. It's fascinating. There's like so much more that we don't really understand. It reminds me of this like Jesuit priest that before class every day, I think it was like at Notre Dame or like maybe it's Creighton, one of his awesome schools. He would write before the class or he's like, there's more, there's so much more. And he would just leave it like that. And I love that kind of line of thought because I think it applies to business like stuff happens that we have no idea like why we meet the people we do and I'm so fortunate so lucky I met John Kirtley and Jeffrey Leck at the time I did and they're just like that was like winning the lottery because they're just so gracious so easy to work with so forgiving like all the mistakes I made they were still there they backed me they gave me the freedom to play and it was just like I could have never had a better environment to grow up in it was just amazing and so I'm so thankful for them it's amazing to have that experience Absolutely. Yeah. You've been down on 
school through through these stories. I'd be curious on, as a closing question, what class would you teach in college if you had to teach a class? I love that question. Of course, I think school is an abject failure. It's so off that like I would scrap the whole system and start with something entirely brand new and that has nothing to do with the current system. And I would actually only focus on one thing. I would just forget everything we know about school and education. There's only one thing that matters, which is, can you concentrate your mind? I would only do things through experience, through taking actual action to develop that level of concentration. Because once you have that, you're going to be world-class at whatever it is that you want to do. It could be athletics. You can be an Ironman athlete. You could be the best fighter in the world. You could be an amazing pilot. It doesn't matter. But if you got focus, you're going to hit a golf ball farther than anybody. That's the superpower. So I'm interested in like people leveling up their game. And it all comes down to that one thing. How well can you focus and can you concentrate your mind? I like it. What's a belief you used to hold strongly that you've changed your mind on? If we have money, then that makes us whole, complete, and perfect. It's a total trap. And it's super hard to learn that lesson without actually going through it. So if your life is miserable before making money, your life is still going to be miserable after that. A lot of people are saying this. It's so true. But it does help provoke the next evolution if one can kind of complete that insecurity in their life. So I grew up with kind of a weird economic scarcity complex. And so I was driven by this need, hey, I've got to go make a ton of money because I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. I need to protect myself. I need to protect the people around me. I don't know why, but that's just how I was. Maybe it's because my grandparents like went through the Great Depression and the Dakotas, right? And so like you learn, it's just coded into your DNA that there's bad things coming and you need to start saving now. And so I still suffer from it, Frank. I thought like, well, if I ever made a million dollars, like I'm done. I live very inexpensively. I don't need anything else. And what I found is that like, If you're interested in making money, it doesn't turn off. You get addicted to the game. And I realize that I'm still really excited and stimulated by the creativity and business. And so it was a big surprise. I thought like, oh, geez, once that's done, I'm never going to be involved in business again. But I love doing it more for personal reasons and seeing other people succeed now than my own personal gain. What's the best business you've ever seen? Certainly, I'll name the one that I'm currently working on, Alma Ventures. It's so creative. It's so innovative. It's in a really boring, fragmented industry, which is real estate. I think real estate is one of those areas right now that I used to look really down upon real estate just because that's where people that are not very smart go. But that's actually why I love it so much now is that you can be totally mediocre and average and you're going to do really well. Like if you took a stopwatch to any construction site, it's just appalling. I've never been in one engineering class my entire life, but I guarantee I can engineer a better way to build a house. And so construction tech, property tech, I'm fascinated by it. Alma Ventures is doing some really, really cool things. But that's kind of a cop-out because I'm currently involved with it. Let me name a better company. There's a company called Redhead Brass. This is a company, again, it's a total write-off, but it's one of those that I could have just absolutely swore that this company was going to be a home run because it had a natural monopoly. And here's a weird, interesting fact. So all fire hydrants in the United States that are west of the Mississippi have a standard thread pattern. So a pattern to connect like a fire engine hose to like a hydrant. It's all standardized. But east of the Mississippi, it's very different. 
Every municipality has their own unique threat pattern. And the reason why is because counties and municipalities, they would go steal each other's water. <laughs> and so it's just like you had to have a different threat pattern so no one could hook their hose up to your thing. You had to have this unique thing that nobody else had. Well, there's one company in the country that owns the threat library for all these municipalities. And so it's like every time you have any sort of fire equipment being manufactured, like a new fire truck, any fire hoses, old hydrants, like anything in that industry that's happening, you have to go to this company to buy your stuff. It's like amazing. They have a natural monopoly. Their margins are 45. It's like something you never find. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to sell my house. I'm selling my dog. I'm selling my boat. I'm selling my girlfriend. I'm selling everything I own to raise money, to put in this company. This is my ticket. I'm going to make it big. What actually happened is that a hourly employee that worked in like the warehouse, I don't know if it was his own idea or if he was coaxed by somebody else, but he ends up stealing the library the Threat Pattern Library. He goes across the street, they set up an operation, and they start competing. So very clear, obvious case of intellectual property theft, theft of trade secrets. Now, we, of course, hire a private investigator. They go and work for this new competitor. And sure enough, the Threat Library has our logo on it. And so the private investigator takes photos. These guys are manufacturing using stolen intellectual property. We've got an amazing legal case. We're going to shut these guys down right away. We hire some top-notch lawyers. They litigate. They go to Ohio. And a small-town judge in Ohio, he asked kind of three questions. Well, guys, did anybody get killed? No, sir. Nobody's dead. Everything's cool. Anybody do illegal drugs? Nope. No, sir. <laughs> like, that's not what this case is about, man. Did you read the notes? Three cases. Well, you're American. You believe in competition, don't you? And that's the end of the case. So long story short, losing every dollar of investment in Red Hat Brass. But I love the company. I think it's amazing. One of those natural monopolies that you don't see very often. That's wild. So there was no way to get any recourse on that property theft? There was no other court it could have been tried in or anything like that? I would love to think that there would be a way. I like to think that the world is just and fair. I learned a lot about law. I learned that should win doesn't always win. And in leveraged cases, which is the case that most people are going to end up buying companies, they're going to use some form of debt. You've only got a certain amount of time to turn a company around if things don't go well. And in litigation, things can get pushed out and there's nothing you can do about it. And so cash just went to zero and it wasn't worth fighting. Man, that's brutal. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your time on the podcast today. We'll have to do another episode because it sounds like there's so many more stories to go over. But thank you for sharing this initial bunch. I'm excited to have you again soon. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.